Welcome to Southern Illinois Worship Center. Today, you'll be hearing a powerful message from our latest series. Let's listen in now. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Who's going to give an account? Each of us. And I'm not accounting for my neighbor, and I'm not accounting for somebody else. I'm accounting for myself. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, so just turn just a few pages back to Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and there it says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we're going to give an account to God. And what's going to happen when people give an account to God is people are going to try to make excuses about their behavior, their responsibilities, what they did with what God gave them. We could go to the parable of the talents and talk a little while about that. But people will try to make excuses. And Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, we will stand before God without excuse. Nothing we can say. So I just want to take the next 12 hours or so and I'm going to talk about accountability. I just want to talk, and accountability is uh, an interesting topic in our day. So I thought I would just kind of put you all at ease, and I would, I would try to fashion my best pastor, Melissa, and I would tell you a story. A man by the name of Cliff, he was flying in his hot air balloon, and he realized that he was lost. So he reduced his altitude, and he spotted a woman below. He descended a bit more just above her, and he shouted, Excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend that I would meet him an hour ago, but I do not know where I am. The woman said, well, you are in a hot air balloon. You're hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You are between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. Cliff said, you must be an engineer. The woman said, I am. How did you know? Well, Cliff said, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea of what to make of your information, and the fact is, I am still lost. And frankly, you've not been very much help at all. The woman looked back at Cliff, and she said, well, you must be in management. (laughs) He said, I am. How did you know that? Well, the woman said, You don't know where you are or where you're going. You've risen where you are due to a large quantity of hot air, and you made a promise which you have no idea how to keep, and you expect the people beneath you to solve your problems. The fact is you're exactly in the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. Isn't it amazing how easily and quickly we attempt to hold others accountable for our decisions or try to hold other people accountable for our problems? And even though I just told you the story of modern-day language, this phenomenon of misplacing blame and shifting blame when it comes time for accountability is not a new problem. It's always been a problem. So we're going to go to the book of Genesis here in a moment, but for an easy way to understand what we're talking about, let's just take the word accountability and and let's just reverse it. It is the ability to give an account. It is being able to give an account of our actions, the obligation to report our behaviors or actions, just the ability to give an account for ourselves. Now, most of the time when we talk about accountability, people think, well, accountability and responsibility are the same thing. Responsibility and accountability are quite different. Accountability is what happens when you do not fulfill your responsibility. Accountability just refers to what has happened after responsibility was given or responsibility was taken. And accountability revolves around the, the, in the actions or the consequences that are going to be put into our lives because we failed to take responsibility 
or we fail to fulfill our responsibility, or we fail to just take action. And I would say this to all of us Christians, inaction is an action. We think if we don't do anything, everything's going to be fine. If we just put our head in the sand, everything's going to be wonderful. Our inaction is actually an action. We say it a little differently in our day-to-day, right? We say what one generation tolerated, the next generation will celebrate. Because one generation failed to take action on it, the other generation deems that they don't have to take action on it. And we are all accountable. We'll stand before God. When we talk about accountability, accountability is usually um, confined to one person. Because accountability is about ownership of consequences, or even the possibility of correction. So if accountability were a shared behavior or a shared thought, then all of a sudden the blame game would ensue. Has any parent ever been involved in the blame game? Who did it? One day my mom had made brownies for our family when I was a kid, and my dad came home from church and all of the brownies were gone. They were disappeared. And he was quite upset because he was looking forward to the brownies. So he lined all four of us kids up and said, somebody needs to admit to eating the brownies or the beatings will commence. (laughs) All four of us were like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And so the beatings commenced. And for the longest time, we all denied doing it. Finally, we were telling my oldest sister, just take the blame so the beatings will stop. She refused. And a couple weeks later, my mom made more brownies. We come home from church, and our Labrador retriever was up on the counter eating the brownies. The dog did it. it. Became a true statement in our house. The dog needed to come to an account of his ability to get up on the countertop and eat the brownies. And then my dad had to take accountability because he thought we had done something wrong when we didn't. But he was bringing us to an account. It's about the possibility of correction. And blame games begin to ensue. So let me just go through the blame game in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 3, and we'll get into the blame game. Adam and Eve, from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3, God gave them basically five responsibilities. How many of you have given your children five responsibilities before? Clean your room. Get up out of bed, clean your room, get dressed, get in the car, we're going to church. Five responsibilities, just basic things, five basic things. Here they are, Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 30, God gave them this responsibility. Have dominion over everything. In verse 28, he said, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, he said, I want you to tend, I want you to keep the garden. Or in other words, I want you to serve in the garden. Then in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, he said, I just want you to be obedient. Then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he said, I want you to walk with me, and I want, I want to talk with you. I want to show up in the morning. I want you to be there, and I'm going to have conversation with you, and I really don't want you to miss the appointment. So five things. Just have dominion over everything. Be fruitful and multiply. Serve. Be obedient. And walk and talk with God. That seems to be pretty five basic things that they should have been able to do. I mean, who doesn't want to have control over everything? What man in this room doesn't want to be fruitful and multiply? Man in the room. Uh, Who wouldn't want to tend God's garden? Who wouldn't want to be obedient to God? Who wouldn't want to get up in the morning and walk and talk with God? Five basic things just to be responsible for And as soon as God gives them these responsibilities, one of the responsibilities was not completed. And because one of the responsibilities was not completed, it caused all the other responsibilities to go unfinished as well. They violated one. They failed to be obedient to God. And because they failed to be obedient to God, all of a sudden now they're no longer tending the garden, they're no longer keeping the garden, they missed their appointment with God, they're no longer going to be fruitful and multiply, and now they no longer have dominion over everything that God told them to have dominion over in their lives. 
So once they violated one responsibility, they begin to abdicate the other four responsibilities that God had given to them. So because they had abdicated this responsibility, they now are no longer in dominion over everything that God had commanded them to be over. God's command to them was to subdue. I want you to subdue everything in this place. I want you to have authority over it. Instead of them subduing through deceit, they were subdued. And if they, now here's what happens. If they had continued to have dominion and authority, or let me use the word subdued, if they had continued to subdue, they would have been in relationship with God. The minute that they stopped subduing things is when they fell out of relationship with God. Let me put that in more modern terms. The minute you fail to take authority over the things that the enemy throws at you in your life is the minute that you begin to walk out of relationship with God. And so many people in the church think that we don't have to take authority over things, but your inaction is an action. And the longer that you don't take authority over things, the more the enemy will take authority over things. And it's time for the church to rise to the occasion and be accountable for the authority that God has given to us in our lives. It is our responsibility to subdue all of Southern Illinois for the kingdom of God. And you can think we don't have to do that, but as long as we are subduing, we are not subdued. So they missed their appointment with God and God asked them. In Genesis chapter three and verses nine through 13, God just calls to Adam and he says, where are you? I gave you five responsibilities. You missed one of the responsibilities. Where are you? I want you to come give an account about why you have failed to keep this responsibility of walking and talking with me. You've missed it. Where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. I had fear because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? I gave you a responsibility. I told you, don't eat of this tree. Be obedient. Don't eat of this tree. So you have missed this responsibility. Who told you? Who told you that you could do something that I told you you cannot do? This is a big, big line for our generation. Who told you that you could do the things that God said you should not do? Who has deceived you to tell you that you can eat of things that God said leave alone? Who told you to partake of things that God said you should not partake of? Who told you to talk that way when God said don't talk that way? Who told you to put death in your mouth when God said life and death are in the power of the tongue? Who told you that you could do that? We're getting held to an account. And here's what the man said. The woman. Now watch what happens. He doesn't just move the blame off of him to her. He moves the blame off of him to her and God. He says, the woman that you gave me. So in other words, God, it's your fault that I did it because you gave me this woman. I didn't ask for her. You put me to sleep and pulled a rib out and poof, I got Eve. And now look where I am. You told me, God, that when we got together, just say, yes, dear. I said, yes, dear. And then God says to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I didn't do it. The devil made me do it. Adam blames the woman, the woman you gave me. Adam moves the accountability to God and to Eve. Eve then moves the accountability over to the serpent. The failure that they had to be responsible now brought accountability. And as soon as God wanted to hold them account, they went into the blame game. Adam's fault, Eve's fault, the devil's fault. It's the usher's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the preacher's fault. It's the evangelist's fault. It's the, it's the president's fault. It's the governor's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my... It's, uh, 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 
certainly isn't me. I'm not the one standing in the need of prayer. You need to be praying for the person who made me do this. So the blame game is simply this. It is the refusal to be accountable for your own actions. The Bible is clear, Romans 14, 12, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. So we blame the devil. He made me do it. We blame society. Everyone's doing it. We blame our environment. It's because of where I was brought up, how I was brought up. I was not in an emotional coddling culture that I did it. We blame authorities. I was just doing what I was told. We blame our government. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's the Independents' fault. It's democracy's fault. We blame the government. We blame our culture. It's where I'm from. It's how I was brought up. It's just how I am. Have you ever heard that before? We blame our language. We just need to get the terminology right. It's not really sin. It was a hiccup. The blame game. And the blame game turns into the rename game. We begin to rename everything. We live in the age of excuse making. And Adam and Eve started it. And we continue it. Let me just tell you what excuses are. Excuses are mainly a means of placing the blame of an internal problem on an external condition. I have fear because you make me fearful. I have this because you or that made me do it. I just got a new car and I've already got my excuse ready when they pull me over. It was the engineer's fault that made this engine so fast. (laughs) I have an internal problem. My internal problem is I like to drive fast. I blame it on an external condition, these little rectangle signs that they put on the side of the road that limit what I want to do in my life. And how many of us have something on the inside of us and we begin to blame the the signs that try to limit what is conditioning us that could be a danger to ourselves and we begin to blame these external conditions, making excuses. Let me go through some internal problems that people have. Fear of failure, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of success, the fear of change, the fear of uncertainty. We've had two years of that. Fear of responsibility, the fear of making a mistake. We have people who perceive that they lack the resources or the confidence that they need to be responsible. And so we live in this age where people say, I'm going to blame something externally for something that's going on in my own life. If, if this would have just been a little different, then I would be a little different. If, if my dad was not an alcoholic then I would be this. And so we begin to shift the blame all of our life onto external conditions that really we need to take an account and say, you know what? My dad may have been an alcoholic and I may have lived a rough life, but I'm not living there anymore. And I'm going to take into an account now that I'm responsible for myself. And it's me that stands in the need of prayer. And I pray that God saves my father who is an alcoholic, but I'm not there anymore. And now every decision that I make is not based on him. It's based on what I am doing with what God has given to me in my life. Wouldn't the world be such a much better place if we would stop moving the blame to everybody else and say, I wish everybody else would be kind while we're hateful. I wish everybody else would be a gentleman while we're not. I wish everybody else would not speed while we speed. I wish everybody else would speed while we're driving the speed limit. We want everybody else to do things that we're not willing to do ourselves. Why? Because we judge ourselves by our intentions and everybody else by their actions. So when we get into the age of excuse making or the rename game, what we believe is that if we rename something, then we're not accountable for it. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9, he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Another translation, not to be named, says, 
The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Your heart cannot be cured unless you give it to Jesus. So if the heart is deceitfully wicked, we think if we can just change the name of something, then we're no longer accountable to God for what we've renamed. That's why we've renamed sin. Because if I rename the sin, then I'm not accountable for that to God. So it's our ability to embed ourselves within this impenetrable shell of rationalization, projection, and denial. Rename it. Rationalize it. Project. Denial. And the ability of people to do this is nothing short of amazing. Our author wrote it like this. He said, if we deny or suppress or minimize what we know to be true, we assert or adorn and elevate what we know to be false. Let me say that again. When we deny or suppress or minimize what we know to be true, we then elevate what we know to be false. If we don't elevate the truth of God's word, because we know this to be truth, if we don't do this, then what we are doing by suppressing the truth is elevating the lies. And what we do now is we prettify the ugly realities and we sell ourselves prettified versions of our lives. So let me give you an idea of this. Someone who lies would say, instead of saying, I tell a lot of lies to shore up my pride, they would instead say, occasionally, I finesse the truth in order to spare other people's feelings. There's an entire field of social psychology about this. It's called the study of cognitive dissonance. And it's based on our limitless ability to rationalize what we do and what we say. So we'll say, I only made a mistake. I goofed. I made an error instead of saying, I have sinned. We've relabeled marriages as partnerships. Stealing is now the misappropriation of funds. I'm not prejudiced. I just have cultural differences. I don't break the Sabbath. I'm spending time with my family. I'm not making adultery or having adultery. I'm making love or going to bed. It's not pornography, it's freedom of the press. It's not selfishness. It's my right. It's not wrong. It's legal. It's not murder. It's just the termination of an inconvenience due to the stage of life I find myself in. It's not murder. It's not even life yet. Everybody's doing it. It's just the way that I am. I was born this way. I was born the wrong way. Now you tell me how crazy our culture is now. Originally we were born this way. Now I was born wrongly. It's just the way that God made me. Come on, pastor. God is love. He should just love me even though I'm doing all these things incorrectly because what I'm doing isn't named in the Bible because we've renamed it. Oh, love wins. Love wins. Everybody, everybody's going to go to heaven. Yes, everybody that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will go to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. Oh, no, no, pastor. There's multiple ways to heaven. My teacher said, my, 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 my friend said that if we just be good, we can be godly. No, good doesn't make you godly. Godliness makes you good. <laughs> you know, if Melissa took a, a, a label after I, I get done picking on her all the time, if she took a label off of a bottle of pills in my house that said aspirin on it and moved it over 
to the bottle of poison and then took the bottle of poison and put it over on the aspirin. You can put the label aspirin on a bottle of poison, but it's still poison. And we can rename whatever we want to rename, but it's still sin. And it's still destroying your soul. It's still destroying your spirit. It's still destroying your marriage. It's still destroying your family. Now, we, we may rename it, right? Alcoholism now is a coping mechanism. I'm just trying to cope with what's going on. If you continue that behavior, you're going to have a lot more things to cope with. So we have to tell people the truth. The truth is the only thing that will set you free. Does everybody believe that? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So that means if you understand and believe a lie, that puts you in bondage. If truth sets you free, then the opposite is true, that believing lies will put you into bondage. And the church is trying to suppress the truth. We don't want to tell people the truth. We don't want to tell them what thus saith the word of the Lord. We don't want to say anything because we want everybody to like us. And so we now have defined suppressing the truth as being kind. But if you suppress the truth, you are elevating the lies. The more silent the church gets, the louder hell is. There was a couple of fellas, they were fishing by a stream and they noticed that over their shoulder there was this bridge and this bridge was just falling apart. We could say it was a bridge in Illinois. just falling apart. And every time a vehicle would drive across the bridge, another piece of the bridge would fall and the entire bridge would just shake very violently and dangerously. We've got a civil engineer on the front row who's just like this right now. They sat there and fished all day long and every time a car would go over it, the bridge would just shake violently. Finally, this big 18-wheel truck drove across it and the bridge completely fell apart right in the middle of it. The two fishermen knew that if another car came around the curve, that the driver would never know that the middle of the bridge was missing. And the whole thing would just come crashing down, damaging the vehicle and really injuring or killing the driver. So the one guy who was fishing looked at his buddy and he said, we've got to do something. What would be the most Christian thing we could do. And the guy said, well, we should build a hospital. Because we don't want to tell people that there's danger on the path that they're on. And isn't it just like all of us Christians, right? We would rather build a hospital than put up a warning sign. We want to deal with things after the fact instead of taking preventative action. We feel good and we feel great because we built a hospital and everybody likes us because we built a hospital. But wouldn't it have been better to tell them, hey, you don't have to go to the hospital. If you stop your car right here, right now, everything's going to be all right. So we allow people to get into the most horrific states before we want to get involved. And for some reason, we've fallen into a trap of believing that love must lie. That love must accept and never expect. This is the conundrum of our day. It's really the conundrum of pastoring in the modern day world. That if I speak truth, my social media page is going to blow up and it will not be kind. That people will call me hateful by being hateful. That if we put up a warning sign and say, if you continue to live the life you're living, you're headed for destruction. It'd be a fool of me to say we built the hospital for you on the other side of the bridge because I don't have time to get them to a hospital when eternity takes place. We have to come in to get ahead of it and out in front of it and keep them from damaging their life so that they can get to heaven and not a hospital. How many of you believe that you've received grace in your life? How many believe you've received truth in your life? So we believe, and because we believe, we have a responsibility 
because we've received grace. We've been set free by truth, so we have a responsibility now to truth. We have a responsibility to speak truth with grace. We're going to be held accountable for this. God gave us a responsibility to have truth and grace. Grace without truth is not really grace. And truth without grace is not really truth. You must have grace and truth and truth with grace. Let me ask you a question. Is it grace that I would allow people to go to a hospital that we built because I refuse to tell them that the bridge is out? Is that being graceful? Likewise, is it truth that I tell them that there is a hospital but refuse to tell them how to avoid going to the hospital? See, technically, I'm being truthful. We built the hospital. But I'm not telling them that they'll never make it to the hospital because the bridge is out. We tell people that there is a heaven, but we don't tell them that the bridge is out and they need somebody to build a bridge in their life to make it over to the other side. We fail to tell them that Jesus is the bridge that will fix the damage of their life and that Jesus will take them from this side over to this side. So yeah, we tell them, yeah, there's a heaven, but we won't tell them, hey, the car you're in has got four flat tires and the engine's about to blow. Your life is a mess. It's a wreck. That's truthful. And a lot of people want to say that to to unbelievers right now. You want to tell them exactly what you think. But that's truth without grace. So our goal is to become fluent in both grace and truth. Fluent so that in the both in the same sermon and in the same conversation, we can seamlessly shift between the two, giving grace and telling truth when prompted by the word of the Lord or in our heart. So we have to preach and we have to witness with earnestness and with a prophetic edge in our speech. We don't blend grace and truth in a way that dilutes them. Rather, we combine them in a way that keeps them both furiously full strength. There's a Greek word that explains exactly what I'm talking about. It's a Greek word called parakaleo, or it simply means someone that will come alongside and call you up to a higher level. Someone that will come alongside of you and help you in your struggles in your life. It is not the job of the church to get out in front of people to prevent them from finding Jesus. It is the job of God's church to come up alongside of people and help them walk this walk to call them up to a higher level of living. It is our job to be full of grace and truth the same way that Jesus was to be the paracolor Leo that comes alongside of people and says I know you're struggling I know you're down I know your marriage is a mess I know your family's all going crazy but let me come alongside of you and tell you some truth and bring you to the man of grace because you know what we got right now right let me let me just be that old church person you going to hell and how do I not go there You think I want to go there? You haven't told me the truth. You're technically correct, but you've not told me the truth. I may know that I'm going to hell, but you're not telling me the truth. You've not said a word to me about Jesus. And if I know Jesus, the truth will set me free. What we got to do with Pericaleo is mentor, pastor, and lead people without being permissive. We have to normalize people's struggles without normalizing their sin. I know people are struggling. I know life is tough. I know that the enemy is deceiving people. I understand that struggle. I know it's a normal struggle. All of us in this room have struggled but I can't normalize sin. Sin is sin. And there's a difference between struggling with something and succumbing to something. And I will stand by any person who wants to struggle this thing through. But it baffles me why people would want to succumb to things that are separating them from God. 
And our nation is no longer struggling with things. We're flat out succumbing to it and then approving of it and making it legal. And then we said we've renamed it so that I'm not responsible for it. And we have to be careful that that name game doesn't come into the church. See, while more of you are disgusted about what goes on in government houses, I'm more disgusted what goes behind pulpits. And we'd have revival in this nation if pulpits would repent because it begins in the pulpit. And if the pulpit will have a revival, then the pew will have a revival. And if the pew has a revival, then politics will have a revival. We got it all backwards. We want to legislate revival. No, it begins right here. If you want a church on fire, you get a preacher on fire. If you want a church that worship, you get a preacher that worship. You want a church that will praise, you get a preacher that prays. I've spent my last three weeks dealing with pastors who have no accountability. Not having the ability to make an account. If you're listening to me, you need to find somebody and give yourself an account of your actions. The church is not your private bank. It's not your private business. This is God's house. These are God's people. You are under shepherd of the shepherd. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it. I'm afraid to tell people I'm a pastor. Because we've normalized that sin. We've normalized it. We've normalized the abuse of money in the church. We've normalized the abuse of people in the church. We've normalized that. It's a struggle, but it shouldn't be a sin. Everybody's like, what in the world just happened in here? Well, they all kicked me off the board because they don't want to hear the truth. I'm going to give it to them another way. And I know they watch. I know they watch. Sit back there and watch it all and just run your mouth about it. Listen, if we're going to have a revival, then the real church needs to stand up and stop settling for washed up, watered down, dry, dead, boring church. You know why most pastors don't want the gifts of the Spirit operating? Because it'll expose them for the sham they are. I say let the Holy Ghost have its way and let it rule and reign in this church. We're never going to change this nation by patty caking for Jesus. How we're going to get it is to have an old-fashioned fire. Oh, did he do so good? We got out of there in 30 minutes and we got to Bob Evans before it And our world is going crazy. The church has got its seatbelts on and the world is driving us faster than we could ever imagine. It's time for you to get the world out of the driver's seat and put them over here and put the brakes on that thing and keep this world from entering into destruction. I'm accountable, you're accountable. If you're new here, welcome. You know why, Pastor? I never wanted a pastor, but I despised the church and what it was becoming. So my dad told me as a young teenager, if you don't like it, get involved in it. So I pastored this church the way I want to see a church pastor. We're honest, we're open, we're transparent, and we're vulnerable. Why? Because I despised the church all of my life that we would do one thing during the church service and something else after the church service. We are who we are, I am who I am, and he is who he is. And if we get all that settled, we can have revival. Look at this place. Look at the presence of God. Healings and signs and miracles and wonders. When we get into alignment with God. 
Grace without truth is barbaric. But truth without grace is abusive. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know why? The number one reason why people leave this church, because of what I say. The number one reason why people come to this church, what I say. That's why we call it a three-week challenge, baby. You got to come three weeks. I might say something you agree with. Pastor Tim was in my office on, I think it was Thursday, and I was telling him a story. I said, I was reading this story, and I, I, thought, I thought I might put it into my sermon, and I didn't put it in the sermon this morning. I thought about it some more, and I put it into my sermon. And Hans Christian Anderson wrote the story entitled, The Emperor's New Clothes. And there was an emperor. He was very fond of appearances and clothing. So when some men offered to weave him a rare and a costly garment, he agreed. He was especially pleased that the garment would be invisible to all but the wise and pure in heart. So he commissioned the new garment at a great cost. These men, though, were con men. They began sitting at the looms pretending to be weaving. The emperor's curiosity was soon aroused, so he sent his chief minister to check on the progress. The chief minister sees that there was no cloth on the busy looms, but he didn't want to be unwise and thought to be impure in his heart. So he returned to the emperor with a report about the fabulous beauty of the cloth that was being made for him. Eventually, the weavers asked for more money raise the taxes. So the emperor sent his second chief minister who returned with an even more enthusiastic report. Next, the emperor himself went to see the progress, though he, like the previous two, saw nothing. But he did not want to appear stupid. So he proclaimed the clothing most excellent and beautiful. He even gave the weavers medals. Finally, on the day of the grand parade, the con men dressed the emperor in his nakedness, and then they skipped town. As the emperor paraded before all the people, all natural, the whole populace joined in praising his beautiful clothing, lest they likewise be thought as fools. So the absurd parade continued until at last a little child was heard to say, the emperor has no clothes on. And all of a sudden, at once, the emperor and everyone else knew the truth. The emperor was now exposed in all of his nakedness, and the emperor now felt the shame of his nakedness. See, everybody thought, well, if I say something contrary to the popular belief, then I'm going to be thought to be a fool or intolerant or I'm no longer pure of heart. And it took a little girl who didn't care what everybody else was lying about to tell them, hey, something's wrong here. The emperor has no clothes on. So I just want to be the little girl here today and say there's something wrong when we refuse to speak truth because we don't want to appear to be out of step with society. Right, we see things just like this and we give a report, everything's amazing. Well, we send somebody else. Wonderful. And we see it ourselves because the previous two have told us a lie. We then regurgitate the lie. Things like the Holy Spirit is not for the church today. And we don't want to appear that we're out of step. And so the Holy Spirit just doesn't move in our church like that. And finally, it's going to take somebody to come and rattle the cage and say, the Holy Spirit has not ceased. It is for today. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
The church should not be ashamed of the Holy Spirit. We should be ashamed when the Holy Spirit does not move in the church. We should be ashamed when the church is not growing, but instead we celebrate our four and no more. But it's time for the church to really have revival. I mean, just one word of counsel would have avoided all that pain, all that hurt, and all that embarrassment of the emperor. Or let us say, just an ounce of prevention. Just an ounce of prevention. Like, hey, buddy, you are all natural. (laughs) You might want to put your old garment on because it was better than this newfangled thing that they try to put you in. Wouldn't it be a wise word of us that if we want Bible things, we should do Bible things? But see, they try to put this new garment on the church that you gotta be seeker friendly. Well, in my Bible, in Acts chapter two, they were very seeker friendly. People didn't even know that they should be seeking, but it spilled out into the, into the streets and into the highways and into the byways and they were being compelled and all of a sudden the church began to multiply. So if you want the church to grow, maybe we should put away our church conferences on church growth and go back to the book of Acts when the church began to be multiplied and explode all over the world and it changed the world right Acts chapter 17 these are they that turned the world upside down well if I could just get you to fill out this little thing here and we're going to give you a TV next week I'm not giving you a TV I'm not giving you an iPad I'm bringing you to Jesus because Jesus is the only thing that you'll ever need in your life Pastor, if you could just, Pastor, Pastor, we, we would come back to your church. If you could just calm it down a little bit. And I'm like, where's the fuse to light it on fire? Because the very fire that the church doesn't like, the world needs. The very worship that scares you is the same thing that they did on the bar on Saturday night. And they need to come into a church that's on fire for God to break those chains off of their life. So I'm not going to calm it down. I want to rev it up. I want to see you get so on fire for God that you're a ministering flame of fire. And his angels shall be ministering flames of fire. I'm just going to skip over a whole bunch. <laughs> Let me just say like this. Go read the story of David. And if you want to be held accountable, you have to allow people to hold you accountable. Right. And if you won't allow a prophet like Nathan into your life, God will put a prophet like Nathan into your life. You can either invite him in or God will push him in. But because God loves you so much, he's going to hold you accountable because he has a responsibility to bring you to heaven, right? Because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's responsibility. So he's bringing a man of God to hold you accountable so that he can fulfill his responsibility so that you would not perish, but that you would have everlasting life. You know, you're only as sick as your secrets. And we have minimized our small surrenders. We minimize those. See, if I just allowed the church just a couple weeks just to go being dead, I have surrendered. That's a small sacrifice. Like, ah, next week it'll be better. Next week it'll be better. The next week is not better. And we just begin to surrender small little things, and we think that because they're small surrenders, that it's no big deal. This is what David did, right? It wasn't the adultery that got him really in trouble. It was the small surrender that he refused to go out to battle. 
Because had he been out of battle, he wouldn't have seen Bathsheba. If you would have come home from work, you wouldn't have seen your old friend at the bar. Oh, I got to keep moving. And we, are, we have an accountability to God. We're going to stand before God without excuse. We're going to give an account. And I say this all the time. Pastor Melissa hears me say this more at home than you hear. I'm going to have to give an account to God for every word that I say. Equally true, I'm going to have to give an account to God for every word that he tells me to say that I do not say. And so when you see preachers hedging, I may not want to say that. They're failing to tell you that the bridge is out. And what we're saying is, well, we built the hospital to take care of that later. No, I want you to avoid the bridge and live your life to its fullness with its purpose. We are accountable for the responsibility that God has given to us. I'm accountable for the responsibility God has given to me. You're accountable for the responsibility that God has given to you. And people say, well, pastor, I don't have any responsibilities. God didn't give me any responsibilities. No, God gave all of us responsibilities. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, again, I'm going to read it out of the New King James Version. It says, but the end of all things is at hand. I think we could all agree to that right now. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. What are we supposed to minister? The gift that each one of us has received. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Who supplies the ability? God. So God gives you an ability that you will give an account for. Accountability. You will have the ability to give an account for the ability that God has given to you. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God gave us some responsibilities. Number one, we are to be serious and watchful in our prayers. We're to have fervent love for one another. We are to be hospitable. We're not to grumble. This church does a good job of that, by the way. There's a few of you that fuss and fight, but you're okay. You're Cubs fans. We just, that's just how they are. <laughs> Wait on next week. Don't grumble. Use the gift you've received. I just want to make sure you're paying attention. Number six, you're to speak as an oracle of God. Number seven, operate in the ability that God provides. Number eight, glorify God in all things. Eight things God gave us a responsibility. But then all of a sudden, as I begin to go through these responsibilities, we want to start making excuses. <laughs> but they're Cubs fans, God. How can I love them when they're Cubs fans? If they were just Cardinals fans, I would have no problem loving them. Or the Cubs fan is saying, if they were just Cubs fans, I'd have no problem loving them. But because they're Cardinals fans, and not only they're Cardinals fans, they also root for the Roll Tide. And, I mean, that's like a double whammy. I mean, that's two strikes, God. So we make excuses, and why are we making excuses? We make excuses to avoid the responsibility that God has given to us. Matthew 12, 36 states that we will give an account for every idle word that we speak. It says, for every idle word that men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Romans three nineteen, the New Living Translation, Pastor Melissa's translation says, we're accountable to God, and we won't be able to make excuses. Romans 14, 12, which I read into your hearing, will, each man will give an account to himself to God. For the word of God is living. This is the in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word. And if God has given you these responsibilities to use your gift, 
And everybody's given a, been given a gift. To speak as an oracle of God. Be watchful. Be serious in our prayers. To love one another. Don't grumble. Don't complain. But just to fulfill those responsibilities. And then we begin to make excuses about them. So let me ask you, if God gave you a responsibility, what excuse are you using right now that's keeping you from taking the step that God has asked you to take? I will just remind you, you will be held accountable for it. Are you making excuses that you are afraid of failure? You're afraid of being embarrassed. Maybe you're afraid of success. Don't like change. Things are just too uncertain. I don't want the responsibility. I have a fear of responsibility. What if I make a mistake? Take it from me. In 13 years of pastoring, I've made a lot of them. Fear of making mistakes. I don't have the confidence. I don't have the resources. See, we're very good at making making excuses. We make amazing excuses for why God couldn't or God can't use us. You know, if people in the Bible were allowed to make excuses that eliminated them from being used, we would not have a Bible. Every character in the Bible had some reason or excuse of why God couldn't use them. Timothy was too young. Abraham was too old. Moses was slow of speech. He had a stutter. His brother Aaron was too glib. Elijah was too depressed. Elisha was bald. Gideon was too scared. Esau was too hairy. Zacchaeus was too short. Jonah was a runaway and a bigot. Joseph was a convict. Rahab was a prostitute. Sarah laughed at God. Noah got drunk. Samson had an impulsive control disorder. Peter sank. Thomas was a doubter. The Ethiopian was a eunuch. And Mary was a virgin. Jesus was from Galilee. And the woman had an issue in her blood. The lame man was laid by a gate. Bartimaeus was blind. Paul was the chiefest of sinners. And the man by the, by the, the pool of Shalom had no man. All of these people had excuses about why God couldn't or God shouldn't use them or move on them. So my question to you is, what's your excuse? Are you too old? Are you too young? Uh, do you have a stutter? Do you not speak fast enough? Do you speak too fast? Do you talk South Bendish? Do you talk Southern Illinois? Are you bald? Are you balding? Are you too short? You're too young? You're too old? You're too this? I'm from Southern Illinois. I'm from Heron. I'm from Carterville. I'm from Marion. I'm from Johnston City. What excuse do we have? Oh, well, we're in Southern Illinois. Revival can't come here. Well, my friend, you're in the middle of it right now. So I want to know what our excuse is of why God cannot and should not move on your behalf. Well, pastor, I'm too sick. The diagnosis is too strong. It's been in my family all these years. It's generational. My dad died of cancer. My grandfather died of cancer. There's no... You're using an excuse... To move yourself out of being accountable for the responsibility that God has given to you. And our responsibility is when we are sick, that we are to call on the elders, that they may lay their hands on us and pray a prayer, not of doubt, but of faith over the top of us, that you may be healed. That's our responsibility. And in just a few moments, I'm going to hold you to an account on that responsibility. That if you are sick in your body, you have a sickness that is trying to overcome your life, well, the elders of the church are getting ready to come forward, and then you can step out of where you are and fulfill what James said to us was our responsibility. Not for us to come find you, but for you to call upon the elders so that they can lay hands on you. Why do we lay hands on people? Number one, the Bible 
commands us to lay hands on you. Number two, it transfers our faith to overcome the doubt that you just walked down here with because the enemy is already putting in your mind as you walk every excuse about why it won't happen, why it can't happen, why it shouldn't happen. When, when is it going to happen? And we want to lay hands on you to transfer our faith into you so that God will use you to show that he is a healer, that he is a way maker. He is a problem solver in your life. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to check out our podcast weekly, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also visit siwcenter.org to find out more information about Southern Illinois Worship Center. Be sure to join us right here next week.